Have you ever had or been at one of those uh, awkward Christmas parties? Uh, you know the kind that I'm talking about. Uh, I'm sure that each of you have experienced it, uh, it at some point or another. Uh, but you show up to this party uh, because you know one or two friends who are going there. Uh, maybe it's a work party and you have to go or your boss will uh, think twice about whether he should keep your position there or not. Uh, but as you're there at the party and as you're standing next to the punch bowl looking around to see if you recognize anyone, uh, you realize you're going to have to meet some new people. And after a few brief, awkward conversations with strangers about the weather or about the craziness of the holiday season, uh, with one particular stranger, you start to hit it off. And you're ready to keep talking to them. And so the very next question that you ask is this. What do you do? As in, what is your vocation? It's an interesting uh, phenomenon that we see at least among Westerners that when we're trying to categorize strangers, when we're trying to understand who this person is, who is before us and what they're all about, what it is that makes this particular person tick, what it is that's important to them, we begin by asking them the question, what they do for a living. We don't start by asking questions, who are you, or what's important to you, questions that would get closer to the heart of the matter, questions that would uncover more of what makes a person tick. Instead, we start with this question, what do you do? And whether it's intentional or not, by asking that question, we begin to draw out a person's value for us. How a person is valuable to us. We begin to rank them. We start to categorize these strangers so that when we pull out our uh, networking map, we can say, ah, you're a plumber. I see this is a value to me uh, because, you see, my plumber just moved to Wisconsin a few weeks ago. And we start to put these strangers in the scales and weigh out their importance to us, treating people as nothing more than commodities to be bought or sold or bartered. This is a similar experience to what you've experienced if you've ever gone to a camp, like a basketball camp as a kid. Uh, they start establishing a pecking order immediately upon getting to camp. You start to learn who is the alpha or who is the natural leader and the most valuable player and at the same time who is the least valuable person who is there. We regularly whether we know it or not, or intend to rank those around us. And then, once we've ranked them, once we've decided how valuable this person is to us, we divide, we divide ourselves into groups accordingly, just like you were back in high school. The jocks, the nerds, the cheerleaders, the band people, each to his own kind. Valuing and ranking and dividing. People of God, this uh, phenomenon that we experience, it's nothing new. Um, rather, it's a very old one. 
You see, left to our own devices, people have always been ranking themselves and dividing themselves, valuing those who are most like ourselves, valuing those who have, hold similar values to us. We segregate ourselves according to age, according to race, according to white-collar workers and blue-collar workers, many other categories, too many to name. That is what we do. And it's in us to naturally divide ourselves one from another. And these divisions even crop up within the church herself. The church isn't immune to this division. It's one of the oldest problems the church has actually had to deal with. For over the millennia, the church has dealt with this problem of division. The early church struggled with it. The medieval church struggled with it, and we still struggle and deal with it today. The early church we read about in Acts and in Galatians and Ephesians, they were all marked by a very deep division between the Jews and the Gentiles. We're beginning to touch on much of the things that uh, came up last week. But there was a deep segregation between these two peoples. There was a wall that divided these two peoples. But as you enter into the doors of the church, God begins to tear down the walls that divide. That's what's at the heart of the passage that is before us today. Ephesians 3, 1 through 6. This passage that is about a mystery revealed and is that that mystery is that the dividing walls that used to divide the church into cliques, into groups, into separate peoples, Jews and Gentiles, females and males, free man and slave, those walls have been broken down by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And those who have been afar off are being brought near. And Paul, enamored with the beauty of the church's unity found in Christ Jesus alone, reminds them how this glorifying, glorious, unifying truth came to be. How it came to pass that the Gentiles are included into the salvation of the people. And so Paul explains to us his particular role in this union as a steward of the mysteries of God. Steward of the mysteries of God. Here in Ephesians 3.1, uh, Paul begins to elaborate on the doctrines that have gone before us in chapter 2. He begins to speak about his own role specifically in bringing the gospel to those who were afar off, specifically speaking about the Gentiles. And he begins to show that the church has been expanded beyond the walls of the Jewish temple to include foreigners, strangers, Gentiles who were without promise and without hope or blessing. And Paul says, for this reason, I have been called by God to be a steward. For this reason, I was commissioned. Well, for what reason, Paul? Paul, what are you talking about? What reason was it that you were called to do these things? 
Well, Paul's simply referring back to the verses that were read earlier, in verses 2, 19 and following, where he proclaims to the Gentiles that you are no longer strangers and aliens, you are no longer foreigners among the people of God, but you are fellow citizens, members of the same household. You are now part of God's holy people. You are now part of God's holy temple. And for this reason and this reason alone, God called me as an apostle to preach to the Gentiles. And as an apostle, I am called to preach to you, O Gentiles. It's for your sake that I sit bound in these chains, a prisoner. I don't do this for any other reason than that God has called me to this particular service. And Paul, willingly submitting himself to the will of God, willingly seeking to uh, live out this calling that God has called him to, becomes a prisoner because of this call to preach to the Gentiles. I mean, this is no exaggeration. This isn't hyperbole that Paul is using. Paul, an apostle sent by God to preach to the Gospels, has literally become a prisoner for preaching this gospel to Gentiles who were in far-off countries. He writes this letter to the Ephesians from a jail cell because he would not be silenced, because he would send this message to a Jewish nation, and he is being punished because he preached the gospel to those who were far off. Literally. I mean, you see, Paul, when he is in jail, he is in there because of a nasty controversy that broke out back in Acts chapter 22. Uh, The short version of the story is that Paul is returning to the temple in Jerusalem to worship after some of his missionary journeys, after he has literally been going afar to bring the Gentiles near. And as he comes back, as he returns, he gets mobbed by a Jewish crowd. That when he tell, er, and, and he gets mobbed by this crowd, when he tells them that he was commissioned to go and preach to the Gentiles. And in Acts 22, 22, you can see this animosity between these two peoples, Jews and Gentiles. You can see how deep the problems go in the early church that these people had to deal with. When you hear the Jews speaking against Paul, saying, away with this man, for he should not be allowed to live. They have nothing to do with us. Keep those Gentiles away from the courts of God. We want nothing to do with these people. And yet, now, Paul, sitting in prison, says, I was commissioned to preach grace to you, O Gentiles. I'm not doing it for any gain of my own. I'm not doing it for my own health, which should be obvious. I'm sitting in a jail cell. Surely you've heard the story of what's happened to me by now in Jerusalem. How I've been thrown in jail on your behalf. This isn't bringing any uh, advantages or dividends for me. Uh, Rather, I am doing this because it has been given to me as a stewardship to preach to you. It is my responsibility, and I am preaching this message to you 
that you might be made into one people of God through Christ Jesus, because God commissioned me to seek the lost who were afar off. And I have been called in that capacity to reveal the mystery of grace that was once hidden, but is now revealed to you. To you, O Gentiles. To make known the revelation of God to you. And Paul moves from his role as a messenger to the message itself. To explaining what it is that he comes to bring. To explaining this mystery of grace. This mystery that is once, was once hidden but is now revealed. This brings us to our second point. The mystery once hidden. The mystery once hidden. Paul has told us that he was called as a steward of the mystery of God's grace. But what exactly is this mystery that Paul keeps talking about? I mean, Paul uses that word mystery three times in a matter of four verses. So it must be somewhat important to this whole argument that he is making here. So what exactly does Paul have in mind when he says mystery? Uh, well, it's not like a mystery like you and I usually think of. At least I think this is what we think of. Uh, we think of things like Sherlock Holmes on the case who's looking for clues to discover how the crime was committed. Or we think story of stories like Dick Tracy's or Dick Tracy or the Maltese Falcon. Some of those great detective novels from the 1930s where nobody has any idea what is going on until the very end, except maybe Sam Spade or Dick Tracy, the slickest private eyes in town. And that's what makes a good mystery today. And that, that, is a, that some secret has been hidden away and unknown and something, it is something that we can only guess the meaning and the answer to. But that's not what Paul means here when he uses that word. He's not talking about something hidden away for us to discover. Like we have to find the bread trail of clues that will lead us back to the answer. He is talking about a wonder, an amazing thing, this revelation, something extraordinary, something hidden, now revealed. But he is still, even as he speaks of this mystery revealed, he is unable to grasp fully what it is that is being brought to light. This is what we mean when we use this language, when we speak about things like the Trinity. We call the Trinity a mystery, one God in three persons. And this is a mystery because it is a wonder. It is something incomprehensible. It is too glorious to fully understand. We recognize it. We can see it evidenced in Scripture, but we don't grasp its depth fully. It's not fully explained to us. That's how to understand the word mystery in the Bible, something hidden, now revealed, that we cannot fully grasp. Something that is not fully explained to us. That's what Paul is talking about here. He's not keeping secrets. He hasn't discovered some secret in the Old Testament that has been hidden away for ages. He doesn't hold a secret Gnostic knowledge that no one knows except Paul himself because he uh, could find it by using the, uh, the code 
He isn't solving any crimes here. He's talking about something so glorious that he can't explain it fully. It's a mystery to him, something that will baffle him all of the days of his life. He's talking about something that has been made more fully known than before. Notice verse 5. For this mystery was not made known in previous generations. And it still sounds like you could interpret it like it's a good mystery caper or movie. But Paul isn't speaking about knowing something that no one else knew before. He's talking about the, how in the fullness of time, the mystery of grace in Christ Jesus has been revealed. To put it another way, every single Jewish person, every Jew, male and female, knew the promises of God in the Old Testament. They knew what they were and they knew what they meant. All the good Jewish little boys and girls were aware of the covenant God made with Abraham that he would bless the whole world through them. The people of the Old Testament knew that the whole world would be blessed in some way by the Messiah. But what the generations of old didn't know was how this would all work or when this would take place. And that's what Paul is saying is being revealed. The five W's are being revealed. The who, the what, the when, the why, the where, the how. It's all being revealed to us. All the details that have been hidden away are now being brought into the fullness of light in complete sight for all to see. And yet, these details are still wondrous. They are still impossible for us to fully understand and grasp the depths of the riches of the mystery of the wisdom of God. What's important, though, is that this mystery has been revealed. This brings us to our third point, the mystery revealed. Now, we've made it the whole way through these uh, six verses, and we still don't know what this mystery is, do we? And this marvel that has been most fully revealed, that is now coming to light in its fullest sense that we can comprehend it, so what is this mystery? What is it that Paul is talking about here? What is it that God has more fully revealed to his people now than before? What are the details that have been hidden until the time of the apostles and the prophets? Well, the, real, the revealed mystery, the mystery of Christ, the mystery revealed to Paul and the apostles is that the Gentiles have now been brought near. The Gentiles have been brought near by the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus. They have been brought into the people of God. The dividing wall he spoke about in chapter 2 of hostility has been broken down. And now the demographic of the people of God has radically been changed because of Christ Jesus, our Messiah. It's as though you can hear the words of Ronald Reagan as he stands in West Berlin and shouts, Mr. Gorbachev. Tear down this gate. Tear down this wall. Except Paul is saying, Mr. Jew, God has torn down this wall. The Gentiles no longer have to be made into Israelites to enter into God's presence anymore. 
The veil to the holy of holies has been torn into. We're no longer to uh, proselytize the Gentiles, cause them to be circumcised, that they may worship in the temple, because the church is the temple of God. The people of God are now the temple. The ground has been leveled. You, O Gentiles, are the church of God. You are the temple of God itself. And you are being built together into the dwelling place of God. Nothing like this has ever been seen or done in redemptive history. So Paul makes up new words even to describe what is happening here. He says this new word, he says, Gentiles have been made into co-heirs, made heirs of the promises of God. So just as you Jews, Jews who no longer hold the sole rights to the promises of God, it has now been expanded to include the Gentiles as well. The Gentiles have inherited the promises that were given to Abraham, that were given to Isaac, that were given to Jacob, that were given to David. They are chosen sons and daughters of the living God, just as you Jews are. And not only that, not only are they your new family and new brothers, but they are made members of the same body with you. And Paul gets as close to the mark as he possibly can to explain this mystery when he invokes this language of a body. He says, now Gentiles, you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You are one with each other. This is closer, as close as a marriage relationship, perhaps even closer because it is a body itself. Not only are you brothers, but you are one another. You are members together. There are not two peoples of God any longer. There's only one united together. And not only that, but the Gentiles have been made partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel itself. In other words, the Gentiles, those lowlifes, those who are uh, worse than dogs, they too have experienced the grace of the gospel, just as Jewish Christians have. The Gentiles too were once dead in their trespasses and sins. They too were sinners in need of redemption and now have been made alive together with Christ. They once walked according to the prince of the power of the air. They too were outcasts unfit to be in the presence of God. But thanks be to God that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is a faithful and trustworthy saying for Jews and Gentiles alike, males and females and free men and slaves, black and white and every color in between. Christ came and he died that this mixed people a people from all over, every nation, tribe, and tongue would be made alive together. And as he was raised, as Christ was raised from the dead, so too were we as one body raised in his body. And now the Father looks upon us, the people of God, as his righteous children. 
Not because of any good within us, but because we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one of God. And Paul, he makes these claims about the Gentiles. He says it quite matter-of-factly, telling the church, there's nothing you can do to change the will or plan of God. You can't recoil from these people who are your brothers, who are flesh of your flesh and bone of your bone. You can't think of them in ranks. You can't think of it in terms of these people are below me or above me anymore because they have been made co-heirs with the people of God in salvation. They are God's precious children. And quite literally, your flesh and blood, your family. And you, Gentiles, Jews, male, female, free man, slave, you are united to each other in a way that goes deeper than ethnic ties ever possibly can. It goes deeper and wider. The waters of baptism tie you together closer than your bloodlines. Water is quite literally thicker than blood in this case. People of God, you have been brought near by the perfect righteousness of Christ Jesus. He has stood in your place, setting his love upon you. And the mystery of grace that has been fully revealed in Christ Jesus that is still a wonder, something that will still amaze us to the end of our days, and it has been given to you. He hasn't withheld anything. He brought you to be in his fellowship. For you are his beloved, his bride. People of God, are there walls that divide you from your brothers? Are there things that separate you from one another? Do you think yourself better than those who are around you? From the people who are sitting here in the very pews in this building. We have been built together into one body. This is not something we can achieve perfectly, and yet we can always improve on this. We have been called to grow together in unity. That's what we are called to when we speak of our member or speak our membership vows to one another. To grow together in unity in the bonds of love. The bonds of love being the gospel of Christ Jesus that purchased you for a price. And that means even loving those who aren't like you. It means loving the outsider. It means loving the unlovely. Because they are your body. They are the church together with you. People of God, may we never grow weary of this gospel of Christ Jesus that sets us free. It sets us free from the law that kills and slays. But may we also never grow weary of well-doing. May we seek to love our neighbor as ourselves, our brethren in the church, even here within this body. May we seek to be united as one body of love towards one another. May we hold fast the faith that comes directly from our head, who unites all in all in himself. Amen. Let's pray.
our Father, we thank you for the mysteries of Christ that are being more fully revealed. Our Father, we can never understand the depth of this mystery, for it is a mystery to say that members from all different nations and tribes or tongues have been brought together and are one with one another. And Father, we pray that you would help us, that you would forgive us of our sins when we rank one another, when we separate ourselves needlessly, but that you would help us to uh, bear one another's burdens in love, growing together as the people of God. Father, we pray that you would give us grace upon grace to do these things, that you would continue to uh, reveal the grace of Christ Jesus, that more grace may abound when we fail. And Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.